Hi, everybody. I'm Megan. I'm Jeremy. And you're you. And this is Nobody Reads Short Stories, episode two. So for everyone who is joining us for the first time, Jeremy and I met at Carnegie Mellon during our graduate program. And we both really love writing and reading short stories, but a lot of people that we know don't. So we thought that this podcast would be a great uh, platform for us to showcase not only our own work, but the work of writers that we really love. Exactly. Thank you all for listening and staying safe in your houses. Um, we know that this is going to be first featured on YouTube Live, but this is predominantly a podcast. So we wanted something where while you're doing dishes or doing the laundry, doing some kind of chores or juggling your children, like I literally see you juggling children, um, you would be able to listen to something. And some people are still going to work, so you'll be able to get a full story in. Audiobooks are really popular, so Megan and I decided short story plus audiobook equals perfection. Yes, and you can find our podcast on Spotify and iTunes and Stitcher. Uh, so you can find it pretty much any place that you can find uh, podcasts. And Jeremy and I are 100% committed to showcasing diverse stories of stories of all cultures, all backgrounds. So if you have a story that you would like to submit to us, please go to our website, nobodyreadsshortstories.com, and all of our submission information is there. We would love to hear your story. Oh, and listeners, make sure you like, subscribe, and share our podcast and our YouTube. It helps us grow. Do it now before it gets too interesting. Go, right now, yes. And another way you can help <laughs> us grow our community is through going to Facebook and Instagram and using the hashtag NRSS podcast. Uh, any love that you can throw away, we would definitely appreciate it. All right, this is my favorite part, Cranky. We need Cranky. Okay. So for those of you who are listening, I've now brought out Cranky, who is a large black and white <laughs> clock that was back when people used to develop their own films in dark rooms. They would use this clock to uh, keep up with the amount of time that they were using to develop their uh, their pictures. So Jeremy, are we ready to crank Cranky? Do it! Listen, guys, this is great. All right. All right, just three minutes. We got three minutes, Megan, to blabber as much as we want. Oh my gosh, okay, three minutes. Three minutes. All right, what I've, what I've been reading this week, or what I finished <laughs> reading this week, was <laughs> this fantastic um, book of uh, stories called Born a Crime, Stories, Tales from a South African Childhood by Trevor Noah. If you're not familiar with Trevor Noah, he is the lead correspondent on The Daily Show. And this book is um, one of the, the best examples that I've read most recently about a person taking their very authentic um, story and, and using it to really create powerful stories that bring you into their world. Um, it's, it's the story of living in South Africa as um, a mixed person, and, but it's also the story of his relationship with his mom and I and I have to warn you that the last chapter is so cathartic that you will be crying like I was crying when I finished the story but it's it's a beautiful cry it was like it was just so wonderful and it was so well written and uh, Trevor Noah 
really uses his experience to um, to be an advocate and to um, to responsibly use his his platform on the Daily Show to teach people about uh, slavery and apartheid leading into democracy in a hilarious way, believe it or not. So I highly, highly recommend that you check it out. Megan, you persuaded one person. Um, I'm totally going to read it. Like, I love memoirs, yeah. so I'm really excited about it. Ask me now. Jeremy, what have you been reading this week? Oh, man, I didn't think you would ask. So, <laughs> okay, so last time I, I brought this in, the Song of Achilles by Madeline Miller. One of the things, the feedback I got from my mom was she was like, you should not recommend something that you have not read yet. Well, mom, I'm halfway through and it's amazing. <laughs> it's so good. Um, if you want a book that's going to make you swoon, Megan, do you want to describe the cover? Oh, yes. It's this beautiful teal or turquoise cover with a golden Greek helmet with the song of Achilles written across the forehead. It's very beautiful. Oh, man. And, and the love story between Achilles, and I always say his name wrong, Patroclus, is so, it's really sincerely beautiful. If you guys like uh, Brokeback Mountain, if you guys remember that movie, um, it has that kind of feel to it. Like, just, just a bond that uh, makes you swoon. Really like it. Oh my gosh. I recently rewatched Brokeback Mountain and it's still like it's it holds up and it's still just like brought me to tears. I mean, you guys are gonna think I cried everything, but I don't. So I'm really good. not a big cry. It's so good and it's interesting to see those actors like um I love her. What's her name? Uh blonde. <laughs> oh. All right. For those of you who are listening, I just jumped. Uh she didn't just jump. Her she lost a year of her life. Um, all right, In the Blood by Megan Morrison. A story. One second, sorry. Uh, in the Blood by Megan Morrison, a story about how falling in love forces a young woman in the South to reconcile her own desires with those she inherited from generations before her. In the Blood. A baby was a result. A result of sex, yes but Shayna suspected the result of something else completely, though she wasn't exactly sure what that thing was. Shayna had thought she'd first seen this thing appear in her cousins, her mother's sister's girls. There were three of them, barely each a year apart, solid, hardy figures with twigs tangled in their golden brown hair from slashing through the trees, from running out into the storms to pull clothes off the line. Their hands were strong and raw from climbing water towers from throwing bales of hay in their grandfather's pasture. Together, they were a pack of wolves, ready to descend upon whoever, whenever they smelled blood. Shayna was the calm center of the chaos. As the youngest and quietest, she was the sapling protected by the live oaks, learning how to sway and crack in the midst of any fury that may ravish them. She was known to go hours and sometimes days without talking. The cousins kidded her, started calling her shush, but they slaughtered anyone who called her retarded. In their orbit, she could be as she was with total acceptance, and Shayna never imagined any other existence. Then one day, Shayna's eldest cousin, called Big Sis, looked over at one of the boys in the gravel parking lot outside the truck stop and smiled an ugly smile Shayna had never seen on her cousin's face before. Her strong chin melted, her daring eyes dulled, her round cheeks puckered up as though offering themselves to be bitten. 
The boy glared at Big Sis and spit, but stole sly glances at her for the rest of the day. The next Saturday, there were only two cousins chopping down trees in the woods to make a bridge over the creek. They caught sight of Big Sis in the parking lot, her skinny legs dangling from a tailgate, her face and hair done up, whispering in the same boy's ear. Their arms and legs were wrapped around each other, so they reminded Shayna of the muscadine vines choking the hickory tree down by the pond. But then the next week, Big Sis was once again rounding up the wolves. Only this time, it was to stalk the boy from one parking lot to another as he stood around sneaking sly glances at other girls. Big Sis would howl with anger and charge through the crowd to confront him, and their argument would create a wide berth that the crowd instinctively made room for, but otherwise ignored. The first time Shana watched this display, she was righteous. Yes, get him, Big Sis, she thought. Demand he bow down like anyone else who crosses us. But then Big Sis conceded, and Shana watched aghast as she allowed herself to be wrapped again in the boy's arms, and they ducked behind the truck, both of them unzipping their shorts as they went. Shana turned to the remaining cousins to commiserate in Big Sis's traitorous behavior, but both of them were huddled together, pointing out the boys in the crowd they thought were cute. Shana suddenly felt a chill. The cousins ushered her over to join them, but Shana stepped back, widening the gap between them. Shana realized she'd seen this behavior before and would have none of it. When Shana was 12, she went to live with her uncle permanent. Emmeline, her mother, had been leaving her there for a week or two at a time since she was out of diapers, and the uncle made sure she still had her fingers and toes when her mother got back. But as full-time lodging, Kenny had protested. What I know about taking care of some girl, he bellowed. Emmeline kissed her daughter and left the house, making a beeline for her car. Kenny followed, grabbing hold of the door of the vehicle before she could take off. You going up to Memphis to find that boy, huh? He asked. I just got to see, she said. Her bravado lessened and she wouldn't look him in the eye. He's good for me. Kenny spat at that. He's good for your snatch, you mean. Emmeline gunned the car, ripping it out of Kenny's hand and slinging rocks at him as she tore off onto the road. Kenny turned back to the house to find Shana watching it all from behind the screen door. As he came toward her, she receded back into the living room, trying to anticipate his next move so she could dodge it, but his face was intractable. He knelt down in front of her, took her small hand in his large mitt, then pushed her hand hard against her own crotch. She flinched in surprise and embarrassment. This don't run you, he said, his cigarette breath shrouding her in a rancid haze. He tapped the side of her head. This runs you. Shana nodded. She understood the words, but his meaning was only a tickle against something she thought she knew. Kenny stood up and went to the kitchen for a beer. They didn't see Emmeline again for a year. Shana lost her virginity when she was 15 and afterwards still didn't know what all the fuss was about. The boy had said he'd only have sex with her if she didn't become obsessed. She promised she wouldn't and five minutes later, he was cradling her in his arms, telling her he loved her. She sternly told him she wouldn't cuddle with him unless he took off and properly disposed of the condom. Her request made him angry. He protested wearing the condom in the first place, and he said he wouldn't have sex with her again. Shayna shrugged and started to get dressed, but he pulled her back down onto the sleeping bag and they went through the motions again. At first, Shayna wasn't going to tell her cousins about it. Since that day in the parking lot, things had shifted and she no longer felt the safety and acceptance of the pack. 
but she longed to regain the cousin's companionship and thought sex talk might be the way back into their good graces. When she told them, however, they only smirked and made fun of her for waiting so long. Shayna was curious about sex, but she wasn't curious about babies. Anytime anyone she knew came up pregnant or got someone else pregnant, they acted real surprised. What the hell? They exclaimed. I can't believe this happened. Shayna just stared at them. Biology was facts, the way God made you. And Shayna trusted God and the small print on the box of condoms. So the next time Emmeline came around, Shayna asked her for a ride to the health department to get on the pill. But Emmeline was busy waiting for someone. Her mother smashed one cigarette into a loaded ashtray and immediately lit up again. This is the image Shayna would recall most often when thinking of her mother, skin clammy, brow furrowed, alternately pulling her hair back then letting it down. If Shayna didn't know better, she would have said her mother was on drugs, but Emmeline had pulled a needle out of her own mother's dead arm at 10 years old and never went near anything stronger than wild turkey. Six years after her mother's death, when Emmeline gave birth to Shayna, she screamed bloody murder at any needle brought into the room. Shayna knew she could catch her uncle's alcoholism, predisposition, the health book called it. But watching her mother on that day was the first time it occurred to her that there was something Shayna could catch from Emmeline as well. The actual thing of it still eluded her, but it had something to do with the need and the powerlessness that came with it. She saw it in Big Sis and saw it burning off her mother's skin like mist on the river. Her mother needed something so badly that she was no longer herself. She was only the need waiting to be satiated. One by one, the other cousins fell in some similar fashion to Big Sis. Big Sis, Little Sis was pregnant. Little Sis was pregnant before she got her driver's license. And MJ, short for Middle Jane, would have to drive her to the WIC office. When Shayna got her driver's license, she refused to drive her cousins anywhere. When they asked, she told them she had to go to the library, which made them furious, which was the point of saying it in the first place. They cursed at her for being uppity, and no wonder no boy would stay with her skinny ass. In reality, Shayna went to the library only to look at pictures in the magazines, and she only stayed a half hour at the longest. Afterward, she sat in the park and watched the trees sway in the wind of the coming storm, so she didn't forget. Occasionally, she felt the heat. She felt the fire inside her being, but she never let it get out of control, no matter how tantalizing. She would not be at the mercy of anyone. She refused to become the waiting. The summer Shayna turned 20, she decided she would move to Jackson to work as a cashier at the Piggly Wiggly. A second cousin on her grandmother's side used to work there. She had since gotten married and now stay home with the kids, but still knew the manager. MJ's boyfriend knew someone with a basement apartment for rent with a pull-out couch. Kenny just grunted at the news, but when she told the women, everyone decried, What you want to go to the city for? Don't come crawl into me when you get attacked. Why would you do that to your mama? No one mentioned the fact that Emmeline lived in town now and was stepmother to two teenagers Shayna had never met. Occasionally, Emmeline would call Shayna and ask her to visit, but Shayna would always say she'd have to wait and see. When do you think that might be? Emmeline would ask. Her voice strained under the effort of her patience. Although estranged for years now, the link between mother and daughter was guttural. Shayna had dreamed of the day she would have something her mother wanted, and Emmeline would have to pry it out of Shayna's cold, dead hands. The day Shayna left for Jackson, Emmeline showed up, 
just as Shana started to pull out of the dirt driveway. She squinted into the sun and didn't recognize her mother at first. She was but a silhouette moving toward her, thin torso tucked on a tiny waist and held up by warm, solid hips that were the source of all Sienna's troubles. She looked so different from how Shana always saw her, but there was something soft and loving in the way she swayed. It conjured a memory from deep within Shana. She had a strange urge to get out of the car and run to her mother and throw her arms around her. But then the sun and shadows shifted and there was no one there at all, just the dust sifting slowly back down onto the road, light as volcanic ash. At the Piggly Wiggly, Shana memorized the produce numbers on a laminated card and learned to punch the keypad on the cash register without looking. She thought people would be different in Jackson, but it didn't take her long to realize the people in the city wanted her to be the same way as the people in the country. When the grocery store manager came by Shana's station to Windex down the bagging area, she was careful not to turn her back, for she quickly learned he was known to make wandering swipes with his rag. So glad we got a pity face in here now, the manager said, his smile like tar. Shana frowned at him and started wearing her largest t-shirts under her apron, but he still poked her in the side and said, why are you hiding your cute figure under that big old shirt? Eventually, Shana swiped some makeup from the store and painted a brilliant bruise on her face, blooming from her eye and tracing its way down her cheek. When the manager asked her what happened, she mumbled, I just tripped on the stairs. One thing Shana knew about men, they weren't messing with a woman who had a man quick to the punch. The manager never poked her side again. In the evenings, Shana counted down her drawer in an office the size of a broom closet. Shana was tall and scraggly like sugarcane. Bolded into the office, her knees bumped against those of the assistant manager, Janet. Janet had dead eyes, as though she perpetually watched some other life play out before her that no one else could see. Every woman in Shana's family eventually inherited this face. Shana wrapped her coins in the shadow of Janet's nicotine-pinched frown with rapid efficiency, wanting to get out of Janet's domain before it infected her. That summer, the humidity was so thick Shana felt like she was swimming from her car to the employee interest in the back of the store. The nights didn't get below 80 degrees, and they squeezed Shana's resolve like a vice. From her register, Shana watched the automatic doors open and close as customers moved in and out of the store. The dark night sky lit up with streaks of heat lightning. A woman laughed, and Shana flinched. The joy that bubbled from the woman felt obscene. A man leaned in close to the woman's ear, whispering, breathing in her soul. A young man in tight denim jeans and scruffy ginger beard put a six-pack of Bud Light on the belt and handed Shayna a 20. As she took it, there was a shock between them, and Shayna jerked back, but the man laughed. Static electricity, he drawled. His smile lifted the tiredness from his face and brought light into his hazel eyes. Warmth flooded Shayna from her insides, and before she knew it, she was smiling back. There were sweat stains under his cotton shirt, and she could smell the long day's hours on him like freshly turned earth. The warmth surrounding her moved deeper, but she quickly frowned. She diverted her eyes and put his change on top of the beer and didn't look up again until she felt him walk away. From that day forward, whenever the heat lightning streaked, Shayna stayed in the break room behind the frozen food section, seeping in the smell of cardboard and cold blood and shivering. By the time it happened, it was as though it had already happened, and Shana tried to figure out where she went wrong. It started with Shana's high school friend, Michael, coming for a visit. 
It was on the night he came to town to hear an old friend who had a band play a reunion gig. No, before that. It started with Michael picking Shana up from the grocery store in a turquoise Grand Prix. As soon as she got in the car, he doused her in perfume. You smell hopeless, he said. No, before that. It started when Michael's friend, who played bass, looked out across the dirty alley behind his Hollywood apartment and decided he would come home and arrange the reunion show. No, before that, it started during Michael's childhood, the day Michael's friend shot Michael in the hand with a BB gun, binding them forever. Shayna could still feel the BB rolling around under Michael's knuckle. No, before that. That night, Shayna made different decisions than she normally made, and she didn't realize it had been a choice until she'd already done it. Although never romantically involved, Michael brought out something dangerous in Shayna. He made everything seem so simple. It's just a skirt. It's just a pair of shoes. It's just one shot. Shayna was slipping. It was the heat, the sweat, the music, the dark. Michael danced with her, singing along to the band. The noise pulsed, drowning out everything else. There was only the dancing, bodies bumping against each other, sharing sweat, laughing. It reminded Shayna of her wolf pack days with the cousins. At one point, a guy Shayna didn't want to dance with grabbed her arm, and Michael immediately intervened along with two men Shayna didn't even know. One wrong move, and the guy would have been slaughtered. The guy backed down, and everyone continued dancing as though nothing had happened. But Shayna's heart caught in her throat to the point she went to the bar to take another shot to keep herself from bursting into tears of gratitude. The next morning, her feet ached from the high heels she didn't take off before she got into bed. Her ceiling fan whirled through the silent apartment. Michael was gone, back to his real life a million miles away, and Shayna soured in his wake. The night before was now a cold memory, so much so she began to think she'd imagined it. But then why was her head on fire? Her hangover turned vicious. She tried not to bend over too far over the toilet in order to give her stomach muscles more room to contract, retract, contract, insistent on forcing up from her bowels everything Shayna had ever eaten. Fiddle and bile dripped into the toilet. She hadn't eaten all day, not even taken her birth control pill. Shayna knew what was coming up next. All the beers she drank the night before, even the hamburger she had for dinner, then the sausage and biscuits she ate before work, then all the beans and deer steaks she ate as a teenager while living with Uncle Kenny, then all the gallons of Thousand Island dressing she drowned her food in as a child, then the baby food, peas and carrots, and then lastly, her mother's breast milk. The one thing her mother had given that she could not take back. Once Shana saw the milky cream texture, she would know it was over and she would lie down on the cold tile of the bathroom and would welcome the end. The next day, still weak, Shana attended a baptism, and afterwards, at the reception, she leaned against the frame of large windows, her forehead touching the cool window pane, willing herself to stay upright. Her stomach was empty and aching. It was then, through the frosted glass, she noticed a man with a guitar sitting in the corner. The guitarist had the most striking profile Shana had ever seen. His nose was thick with a slight bump in the middle on the way down to a squared off tip. His lips were full in concentration and his chin reached down as though it was unto itself the god Atlas and all his other features encompassed the world. He suddenly turned and looked at her directly. His face was wide and strong and his small eyes, smaller than she would have imagined, hid themselves under formidable eyebrows and the dark hair 
that fell long on his forehead. This was different than the simple burn of lust. It electrocuted her to the point of distraction. Shana couldn't turn away. It was impossible. A tiny voice from somewhere within the hangover screamed. She could hear it as though through water, the desperate bubbles popping, run, run, run. But Shana couldn't run. Whatever she was going to do, she felt she had already done it. At the end of the song, the guitarist took a break, though he kept his guitar on, stabilizing it by the neck with his hand. She watched him as he shook hands with a guest and then disappeared into the other room, but not before he made a slight hesitation to glance back at her to see if she was still staring. It was all Shana needed. She jumped up, immediately regretting the action as a wave of nausea nearly crushed her back into the chair. But she pursued him through the second set of French doors, past the tiny sandwiches, into an almost empty hallway. When she turned the corner, he was there, sitting on the window seat. I found you, she said, sitting down next to him. Was I lost? He strummed the guitar. The strings reverberated like the sound of an audio recording of a children's book. Time to turn the page. This is a large house, but I can't imagine getting lost in it, she said. What if it were nighttime? He asked with a smile. He strummed the guitar again. I can see in the dark, Shana said. She liked being this close to him. Like a cat, he asked. Shana nodded. If I take a moment to let my eyes adjust. He looked at her oddly, open and smiling. She couldn't tell if he found her irritating or charming. She thought it was the latter, but then his face hardened as though he suddenly remembered he should be wearing a mask and he stood up. Shana wanted to follow him, but another wave of nausea struck her, and she was forced to smash her eyelids together. He was walking away. He was leaving. Already she felt the force of his wake. It was then, with her eyes squeezed shut, that she felt his lips on her cheek, right next to the corner of her mouth. Shana froze and waited. He froze and waited, too. She opened her eyes and saw only his forehead, which moved slowly up until he was eye to eye with her. He seemed surprised to see her surprised to find himself there. But Shana adjusted her face slightly in order to place her lips on his, and she gently moved the guitar from between them. When she woke up in the middle of the night lying next to him, Shana watched the heat lightning through the window flickering through the clouds and relished in the heat coming off his body. A couple of months later, Shana took a pregnancy test in the Piggly Wiggly bathroom. She'd been throwing up all day. She stared at the plastic stick with the pink plus and wondered how this had happened. But before she could think back, someone banged on the door. Are you okay? A muffled voice asked. There were several more knocks and bangs, but Shana couldn't move. Eventually, the manager came and opened the door with his key. When he saw it was her, he seemed surprised. But after he quickly took in the pregnancy test box before Shana could hide it, his look turned to blatant disappointment. Oh, it's you. Shana gathered her things, not meeting his eye. I'm leaving now. The manager sighed. It's okay. It's not the first time. Won't be the last. Shana prickled, knowing what he meant. How many women had he found locked in the bathroom, staring at a positive pregnancy test, living one life when they entered and petrified of the life they'd live when they left? For all her big talk, all her vows and determination, she was exactly where she swore she would never end up. But as she walked out of the bathroom, she shoved the manager with her shoulder, forcing him to step back and make room for her to come through. Shana met the guitarist outside the restaurant where he played every Monday. 
She noticed his dark eyes spark up when he saw her walking across the parking lot, and she forgot everything else she was going to say. Instead, she just told him she was pregnant, and he fell quiet for a long time. Finally, he asked her where she would go. Shana said she would go back to her apartment. She was tired, and there was work tomorrow. No, he said, a half-amused smile tugging at his mouth. Will you go home to the country? Shana scoffed. <laughs> no. The two-letter word filled up the void between them with something akin to Robert's cement. He shuffled a bit, settling in. All Shana could see was his profile, the sharp jaw, the thick nose, the shade of his hair. She wanted him right there. Finally, more to the night than to her, he said, well, I don't want you to do this on your own, so... His voice trailed off and she grinned. He took her hands and looked up at her with hooded eyes and long lashes. The half-amused smile came to full bloom in the dark, and Shana leaned in. It was all settled in a couple of weeks. The two-bedroom apartment was cheap, and Shana scoured garage sales for a baby crib. Over the phone, she told Uncle Kenny. Justice of the peace, huh? He said, his drawl rough. What? The boy can't give you no proper wedding? I don't need a proper wedding. It's just a technicality, said Shana. A technicality? Shana heard the intake of his breath as he drew in on a Marlboro. Jesus, girl, you know what you're doing? Kenny must have been drinking. He wasn't usually this talkative. I'm having a baby, Shana said. A youngin'. Another sharp draw on the cigarette. Shana imagined Kenny talking to her outside his house, the low roof of his garage barely able to contain his 6'5 frame. It would be completely dark, except for the periodic glow of the cigarette cherry when he drew in his face temporarily illuminated in a glow, both eerie and revealing. All hail, he said. Kenny had a way of putting things that made Shana know she was borrowing trouble. If he'd asked, she would have said she was happy, but it never would have occurred to either one of them for such a question to be part of the conversation. Months later, Shana lay in the bed, satiated and perfectly still not wanting to upset the equilibrium surrounding her. Sex seemed to be the only thing that made her forget her nausea. She was horizontal across the bed on her side. The guitarist sat on the footboard behind her, humming along with the tune he played on the guitar. He said it was a children's song, but there were no words, so Shana couldn't be sure. Shana liked the first part. It was quick and upbeat and made her think only of the now, a single moment with the hot sheets and calm belly. She rubbed her growing stomach and wished he sat in front of her. She wanted to watch him play. If he were sitting in front of her, she would bend her legs up and out so that her feet touched his feet, and she would be able to see the link between them with the new something growing in the middle. She could roll over and face him, but she might bring on a wave of nausea, so she kept her gaze straight ahead. From behind her, the song went into a minor key, which disconcerted Shana. If it's a children's song, why is it so sad? She asked him. It's the way it goes, he said. The last note faded and Shana felt his callous fingertips trace the knobs of her spine, all the way from her shoulders to the small of her back. You should get a tattoo, he said, leaning down to kiss her shoulder, causing a shiver across Shana's whole body of a sword Excalibur. Then you would be the lady of the lake. Shana didn't really remember the story, only that the lady was powerful, but she knew what he meant. Shana closed her eyes and focused on the steady picking as he started playing again. 
It sounded like the type of song radio stations played in the wee hours of a Sunday morning. Not like the sake of the early risers, not for the sake of the early risers or the devout, but for those stumbling home, falling to their knees to beg forgiveness. Shana imagined hearing this song 20 years from now, remembering this moment and breathing deeply into the warmth of the memory. To her surprise, though, the memory was cold. The future Shana, listening to the same chords, the same lyrics, had dead eyes that looked beyond the present day Shana, watching something else far away. In the bed, Shana quickly rolled over onto her other side so she could face him, catch his eye, and return his mischievous smile before the staggering nausea caught up to her and she had to rush to the bathroom to keep from throwing up at his feet. It was a Tuesday, the day she came home and found the front door open. The baby was four months old, and Shana walked up the steps of the stairwell, taking each one with slow ease, knowing before she really knew that something ill approached. Even before she reached the middle of the stairwell, she felt a burst of cool air flowing down on her. The air was coming from her apartment. She could tell by the hints of baby powder. She stopped mid-climb and let the cool air flow over her and around her and then continue down and out the front door onto the street. Shana felt as though she could distinguish the cool air from the muggy August heat. It seemed to ripple before her, like when salt water met fresh water, flowing together but never mixing. As she took the last few steps, he came into view. The door to the apartment was indeed wide open, and she saw, saw straight through the front door into the small kitchen. He was seated at the kitchen table waiting for her. A suitcase and a guitar case were by the chair. There were no lights on in the kitchen, and the blinds were shut, creating a soft yellow fuzz around the window frames. Even in the shadows, she could make out his thick, dark hair, the sharp chin, the hooded eyes. He was leaning back in the chair. She took the next step, knowing her foot would fall on the squeaky board and he would move. And he did, and he turned to face her, turning himself completely into a black silhouette. Despite the shadows, Shana could tell his eyes were worried and sad. They infuriated her. She shouldn't be surprised, she reckoned, but she was just the same. The night before, they'd stayed up almost until sunrise, having sex, laughing, murmuring. It was almost like it was before the baby, when they'd held each other in their need, giving over to it freely. As she walked into the kitchen, the eyes followed her. She sat down across from him and glared. He tried to stare back, but his gaze faltered. You'll be okay? He asked. He looked toward the door. No. Her need not to absolve him was stronger than her pride. Looking back, Shana would identify this moment as when her heart and head reunited after a long absence. With a rush of emotion, they came together, gleeful in their reacquaintance, talking over each other, filling Shana's ears with pressure and static. Then they both quieted as they realized what transpired before them in the present. I'm sorry, he whispered, anguish in his voice. A pressure hot and burning rushed into her throat. It felt familiar and comforting and devastating all at once. She'd been poisoned and it had started generations ago. No matter what, it would happen the way it had always happened. The baby would grow tall and bitter and the mother would shrink short and bitter, but they would never speak of the bitterness even when they met in the middle. Then the uncle would grunt, listening to it all happen over again. Her face flared red in anger and shame. 
In her silence, he picked up the guitar case. Shana's hand shot out and grabbed the case, weighing it down. He tugged, but she did not budge. Shana would take the guitar and toss it out the window, watch it fall fast and land hard onto the concrete stoop below. The wood would splinter, the strings would snap, the neck would break, the hollow guts would be revealed. But before she could do any of that, the air conditioner kicked in again with the thunk so loud the baby woke up, and its startled screams overwhelmed the air like a plume of locusts. The screams were primordial, hitting a note inside Shayna that diverted her ferocity away from the guitarist and onto the need radiating in the air. One, two, she let go, releasing him, making her choice, and rushed into the other room. She heard the click of the door behind the guitarist and knew it would not open again. Still fussy in her arms, she brought the baby to the window because she knew she liked to look out. In doing so, Shana noticed she'd spit up. As she wiped her chin and mouth, the sour smell of the vomit hit her nose. Shana was reminded of spittle and bile and the night with Michael, the lady of the lake, her mother's milk. What would she tell the baby when she asked her when it all started? A long time ago, she would say, but also today. She turned her daughter back to the window and they looked out together, blinking furiously as their eyes adjusted to the new bright light. The end. Megan, congratulations. Thank you. <laughs> yes, Thank you. yes, applause. We're gonna take a moment to applaud Megan. Megan, that, that's beautiful, I love this story. Every time it hits me uh, a little differently. Um, for people who just listened to the story, Megan is my co-host and I'm so proud of her right now. She did a wonderful job. Oh, thank you, Jeremy. I appreciate it. Megan, I like I've been debating telling you this, but I'm going to do it. <laughs> uh Oh, OK. <laughs> like I, I say it's a compliment. This reminds me of where the crawdads sing a little bit. Oh, okay. <laughs> Which is good. People love that story. No, they do. Yeah. Yeah, it's great. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, the the way the reason why it reminds me of it is it's kind of lyrical and it's sadness. Oh, yeah. I could definitely see that. There's some there's some lyrical sadness in where the crawl dad thing for sure. For sure. So, for sure. Yeah. Um, so are you ready for some questions? I'm going to throw some questions at you. I'm ready. I'm I'm ready. All right, let's do it. So, Megan, what was the inspiration behind this story? Um, the inspiration for this story came actually from a really bad hangover that I had. I was, um, I was just really, really sick. And I, I did feel like I was going to throw up everything that I had ever eaten in my entire life. And because I was so sick, um, I started thinking about like, how did I get here? You know, this is not me. This is, I'm not this person. Uh, and it made me just think back and think back and think back. And, and the more I thought about that, the more I thought that that would be like a cool story or a cool device within a, within a narrative story. And um, it just kind of grew from there. And then I started thinking about um, Shana and um, what, you know, she would be looking for if she was retrospective in that sort of way. And, and, and it grew from there. I love it. I love it because like, you wouldn't think that this would come from a hangover. <laughs> Lyrical sadness from hangover. 
you find the muse where you can find it as a writer, right? Like you don't. I love you don't that question quote. The muse. I love that quote. We need to get that on a shirt, Megan. Uh, uh, Megan, how how do you relate to Shayna? How are you the same as her, and how are you different? Oh well, um, Shayna and I are very different. I am I am not I am not Shayna, but the thing that I resonate the most with in Shayna is Shayna is trying to reconcile growing up in an environment that she doesn't feel connected to or that she feels ostracized from or, or popped out of, even though she found a lot of comfort in that environment. And she is trying to reconcile feeling ostracized from that environment and not feeling like she belongs there with her own desires and her own wants. And I think that's something that anybody who has never felt like at home, at their home, mm. uh, can <laughs> can resonate with. You know, I, I know I think a lot about, okay, I think about all the things that my parents did and my ancestors did and the, the world that they grew up in. And I think how much of it I have to accept as myself and how much of it can I, can I go out on my own and find my own way. Kind of related to that, to that, that was a great answer to the question. Um, this this time around, what hit me, like every time I hear it, I, I get something else, um, was the need. Can we talk about the need a little bit? Sure. What would you like to know about the need? What does it mean to you? Like, because it's found throughout the piece, what does the need mean to you? What is it? Well, I think for, I think for Shana in the beginning, she sees lust is the need just very like she doesn't understand you know as a child she just doesn't understand um human connections mm -hmm. and human these adult sort of relationships and so i think at first he thinks that this need is is just something that adults need and a desire that they have um that they can't really control and it ruins everyone's lives but as she gets older and experiences herself i feel like she's able to understand that it's almost like a, a drive within us. Mm. It's a, it's a pull. It's our intuition. It's our, it's ourselves. It's, it's whatever propels you, you forward. And yes, that can sometimes lead you astray, but it can also lead you to the place that you need to go at the time. And, and I think Shana is still reconciling that in her, in her life. Is the need the antagonist of the story? I think it could be. I think the need could be the antagonist. It's the thing that's that's driving Shayna mm. to, to change and to grow. And whether it's lust, whether it's DNA, whether it's um, you know just your personality. I, I guess I never really thought about that, but I guess you could kind of sum it up with the the capital letter need that that we just feel like when you when you say I just need this and I just have to follow this feeling. I love when you described it as the need because it's almost horrific, you know, like the things that we think of, the, the genetics, the lust and all of that. Like when you call it the need, it sounds like a horror movie. And she, yeah. I, I guess and at the beginning, she's horrified of it. Yeah, yeah, I think I think she sees it as, as a as a something that uh, corrodes mm -hmm. and destroys and separates 
and she doesn't really know how to process it any other way until she's you know until she's older and Shana's still very young at the end of the story you know she's 20 when she moves to Jackson and I'd say she's about 21 22 at the end of the story so she still has more reconciling to do as she moves forward in her life yeah she's lived such a hardcore life it's it's uh, easy to forget that she's very young in the story yeah Megan what it what was the hardest part for you to write in the story what was the biggest challenge as a writer Mm, my biggest challenge was, well, I'm a big fan of uh, James Joyce's short stories, and I really like his short stories. And one of the things he does is he, what what he doesn't write about is just as important about mm. as what he does say and what he does write about. And the challenge for me was to be true to Shana's character and that, that she wouldn't reveal everything to us but at the same time reveal enough and be personal enough so that people can connect and be compelled by her and, and understand her story. And that was, that was challenging for me as a writer because I, I tend to, to have brevity in my prose and be kind of sparse, especially when it comes to like deeper emotional moments. Mm. And um, I liked the challenge of dealing with a character who, who didn't talk a lot and didn't explain a lot and wasn't emotionally retrospective that much. And how do you convey that on on, on a page? Uh, listeners, uh, I would love to hear how you connected to Shayna in the story. So make sure that um, either in the YouTube live or the podcast or after this is filmed and it goes up on YouTube, make sure you comment. And Megan, you will be down to look at those comments and answer your, your lovely fans, right? Oh, absolutely. Yes. If you have any, if you have any comments or questions or um, anything like that, please, please feel free to, to post. Megan, you're awesome. This was a great interview. Uh, make sure to go to Megan's website. It was up while she was reading, but we're going to make sure to have it in the uh, description box as well. Um, and that's it for this episode. Um, Megan, anything else we should say? Uh, no, just thank you for uh, joining us tonight, and we look forward to having you next week. Have a good night. No one reads short stories anymore. I really don't know what they're written for. Go write a short story and throw it out the door. Cause no one reads short stories Funny, sad, or gory No one reads short stories anymore Yes, no one reads short stories